0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of
1: African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, Black Lives Matter in prison, too, including LGBTQ Black Lives. We'll talk with an organizer for the abolitionist group, Black and Pink. And white supremacy is endemic in the United States, but a professor of geography says anti-blackness is spread around the world by global capital. But first, activists in Minneapolis say their protests have been disrupted by dozens of men and women wearing orange shirts who call themselves violence interrupters clearly have a relationship with the police. We spoke with Jay Yates of the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar.
0: We say that they're collaborating with police because whether or not they meant to facilitate those 50 arrests on the 7th, that's what happened. And they, instead of talking to organizing leadership or even just regular protesters, when they show up at things, they talk to police instead and not to us. So there's really not any other conclusion that we can draw other than they are collaborating with the police. As to who are they, it doesn't really matter who they are. It's not so much about that as it is about what kind of authority they have to be showing up and interrupting these events and who do they report to, who trains them, So, yeah, we we don't care about the identities of individual
2: members. You say in your release that they have a connection not just to the police based upon their actions, but to members of the city council as well. Right.
0: Just that we know that this is a city council initiative because that's been made public, but... I mean, like many of the other city council initiatives, they just sort of threw this together. So there's no information available, at least that we could find that tells us who they report to, who is in charge of their training, or if they even really receive training. We know that they're not volunteers per se. They are paid. So yeah, it's just a lack of clarity about if they're violence interrupters, and if their stated mission is interrupting violence in community settings, then there's really no reason for them to be showing up to protests, which are organized events. And if they are showing up to protests, it should be to resolve like inter-community conflict, not to assist the police in kettling and arresting protesters.
2: Describe the behavior of these violence interrupters, so-called violence interrupters, on October 7th.
0: They basically showed up, didn't exercise any sort of de-escalation techniques. They didn't seem to have any understanding of even basic crowd control techniques that like, our marshals at protests even know to use. And they showed up, immediately started ordering protesters around, and then proceeded to form a line and go and talk to the state troopers that were, for lack of a better term, antagonizing the protesters at the moment, and explicitly said, like, we're here to help you. They, on the police chief's orders, or sorry, the the state troopers' orders had protesters run in a specific direction and they then arrested 50 of them. So, yeah, that's pretty much their behavior on the 7th.
2: Do these interrupters wear any distinctive clothing or insignia?
0: They wear orange shirts. Someone else was saying that their insignias, if they have them, are too small to be recognizable. But, again, it's not so much about being able to recognize city employees or what have you, as it is about making sure that we know what their actual goals are, which are different from what they are telling us their goals are. A violence interrupter that's supposed to interrupt gang violence really has no business being at an organized protest. And with the Black Panther event the next day, that was something that they collaborated with the police on to put together And when community members organized essentially a counter event that was really just a block party, (laughs) they showed up very aggressively and broke it up for really no, there was no safety concern (laughs) to be had. So again, if, if they're violence interrupters, if they're about community safety, their actions don't align with that at all.
2: And by Black Panther event, you mean the showing of a film.
0: Yes, they organized with the Minneapolis police to put on a screening of Black Panther on the same night as a pre-planned community screening of Black Panther that had been planned further in advance. So a lot of people felt that that was tone deaf and also undermining an actual like community-organized event.
2: You identify the person that you believe is one of the leaders of these orange-shirted people as Muhammad Abdul Ahad. So you are aware of this group or the group that Muhammad Abdul Ahad is a member of? Yes. And what do you know about them?
0: As individuals or as a group? Both. We don't really know that much about them as individuals. Just because we have the name of one of them, we don't really know a whole lot about them as individuals. And as I said before, that's not really our main concern. It's more about what they can do collectively as an initiative. It doesn't matter if they're quote unquote from the community at some point, although I would say that the people that were showing up to these events weren't recognized by the protesters as far as we know and weren't recognized by us or other organizers. So, yeah, we don't really know a whole lot about them individually, but again, that's not the point. We we're concerned with what the point of them is and what their connection to the police is and if they are going to sort of exercise this model of community policing which As we say in the article, we have a lot of objections to community policing models because they're about surveilling your own neighbors, your own community to report back to the police. And that's not a way to foster trust between us and city council because this is their initiative. So yeah, the only thing that we really know about the leader of this is that he was there and presumably interviewed, or someone was able to find out his name after the fact, we didn't know his name at the action.
2: Yes, it would seem that the Minneapolis version of community policing is to build a pro-police activism block.
0: Exactly, and that's not what we asked city council for, you know. We have very specific demands, and they have once again put together something that the people did not ask them to do. And on a personal note, I'm not interested in people who are informing on me to the cops. I mean, that's the whole point is that the cops are dangerous to community and that many of them are not actually part of the community. And when they are, they are trained to see us as enemies or as interlopers in our own spaces. And that's not what anybody was looking for city council to
2: do. It appears that the powers that be are mocking the demand for community control of police by mobilizing people who may be members of the community who are collaborating with the police.
1: I mean, it does
0: sort of feel that way. <laughs> I guess it can, it can feel sort of targeted in that way. But I also think that city Council really is just so detached from the community at this point that it could also just genuinely be them not understanding what we're asking of them or willfully ignoring what we're actually asking of them. I think it can go either way, honestly. And again, their intentions here aren't especially important. It's the impact of what they're doing and how they are putting protesters directly in danger with this initiative.
2: They have never agreed to community control of police. But for a brief period, the city council was saying they'd move towards defunding of police. But that's gone nowhere.
0: Right. And we knew that it wasn't going to go anywhere because city council has no vested interest in actually following through on that. They said all of that specifically to placate what they perceived as violent protests. I don't think they, they they ever had any intention of doing anything substantial in that regard and so that's part of why we want community control of the police because if communities control the police the budget is something that we decide we decide what the eventual future of the police department is and that can be put to everyone who is affected by policing in the city as opposed to relying on city council to do something that's in direct conflict with their interests. And then they did the same thing with Minneapolis SROs. Students were calling for an end to SROs in schools and their response was, Okay, sure, like we're in the contract and then just hired basically private security and that's not what anyone is asking.
2: I assume that you at the Twin Cities Coalition for Justice for Jamar have discussed how to deal with these orange-shirted interrupters if they show up at one of your demonstrations again.
0: Yeah, we've kind of had like a number of ideas about strategies. It's hard to to say that you're going to do the same thing every time, but you know you have to be flexible with the situation, but. I think that our plan as of now is if they show up to confront them and essentially tell them to leave. And if they don't, then we're probably going to do what we do when other unwanted entities show up to our protests: is pointedly ignore them and not engage with them and not give them that free press. It also depends on how big of a group of them show up at the action. I mean, for the barbecue, there was a huge group of them that showed up and started intimidating and harassing people. So, you know, it may not be practical necessarily to have all of them removed, but we do have tactics to at least make sure that they don't get any more of a platform than they already have.
1: That was Jay Yates in Minneapolis. The ideology of anti blackness is mobile and is spread around the world by global capital. That's the thrust of an article by Adam Bledsoe, a professor of geography, environment, and society at the University of Minnesota. His article is titled, The Anti-Blackness of Global Capital.
3: What the goal of that paper kind of was, was to talk about anti-blackness, not as something that emerges from capitalism, but something that's actually a precondition for capitalism. And so that was one of the main goals of the paper. But the other, I would say, main goal of the paper was to talk about anti-blackness is something that occurs outside the context of the United States as well and one of the reasons that we wanted to do that was that a lot of the times being from North America being anglophone and everything when we talk about anti-blackness racism as a global phenomenon a lot of people both inside and outside the United States will say well from your vantage point that makes sense because you know from the United States the United States has this kind of specific history of racism But is that a framework that can be taken and applied elsewhere? And so what we're trying to show, and I think we do a fairly good job of showing how this plays out in the contemporary sense as opposed to a historical sense, but it could certainly be a historical argument as well, is to show that the different sort of formulations of capital, different forms of capital and expressions of capitalism very much draw on anti-Blackness, whether it's in the United States or outside of it, which is why we have the section on Brazil in there.
2: Yes. And of course, Brazil is tied with the United States in terms of dramatic and now globally well-known anti-Blackness in that country.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important also to frame what is happening and what has been happening in Brazil as a question of anti-Blackness as well and not simply one of class oppression. And I think that that's something that a lot of black activists and scholars in Brazil have been saying for decades and centuries, really, right in their political praxis. but something that I think frequently gets taken up as being simply a question of class. What you'll hear some Brazilians say, oftentimes, scholars and lay people, is that Brazil has a problem with class, not with race. And that is true, right? There is a problem with class in Brazil, but class and race are very closely related and very much overlap in Brazil, as in the United States, as in Colombia, as in much, if not all of the world. And so, you know, when you look at a case like Brazil, right, nationally, and the incidences of police violence, poverty education and healthcare levels and whatever other sort of social indices you want, there is very much a problem of anti-Blackness. I mean, I authored another paper called Racial Antagonism in the 2018 Brazilian presidential election, which lays out kind of how the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, really ran on the platform and uh, ran his campaign speaking to the need to further oppress, marginalize, displace. Afro-Brazilian communities. So it's very much a, I would say, constitutive sort of characteristic of Brazilian society, which is not to say that all Brazilians are racist, but that anti-Blackness does underpin the Brazilian National Project. You speak of the
2: a-spatiality of Blackness. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, when speaking of the a-spatiality of Blackness, what we're trying to kind of explain is the ways in which populations of African descent, in, especially in the Americas, are never understood as really sort of legitimate space makers. The locations in which they inhabit, the notions of place and belonging that we cultivate among ourselves is not something that is viewed by modern society or dominant institutions in society as something that is valid or legible, And that's why a lot of what we talk about in the article are the ways in which afro descendant populations are displaced, demonized, marginalized within place, in a way that sort of casts them as always being either out of place, inherently dangerous, or in somehow derelict in their duty to create a well-run or legible sort of way of belonging in the world.
2: Well, this reminds me of the European view of the Americas as a wilderness when it was full of people and Europeans' view of Africa as being dark, And unproductive. That is, the presence of these people who were said to have no value in the Americas and Africa made them exploitable.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And I think what we're seeing today, what we see today in a number of different contexts, is very much a continuation of that, I guess you could call it colonial project in ascribing value to certain populations in a differentiated way. I would say that there's something of a distinction, perhaps, between indigenous populations and Afro-descendant populations in the Americas and in that indigenous populations were seen as physically present, but in a sort of unevolved kind of way, in a way that was not as, say, advanced or rational as European and Euro-descendant populations were. And you can read throughout the different colonial texts and whatnot that there were these debates about whether or not Indigenous people should be recognized as sovereign over their land, right? And ultimately, we know that Indigenous people were largely displaced, were largely, had much of their land largely appropriated, and experienced genocide, right, unquestionably. But I think there's a kind of a difference between the conception of them as sort of proto-sovereign or sovereign in a way that doesn't quite equal European sovereignty, and Afro-descendant populations in the United States, which never really had that recognition, right? Not even that sort of marginalized recognition as sovereign. When we trace kind of the history of chattel slavery, even in the context of free Black populations, there was never really a recognition that they either had prior presence on the land or any recognition that was respected, I think. They were never recognized, I think, as fully belonging or being able to belong in the Americas
2: and thus had no rights that a white man was bound to respect, as the Taney Supreme
3: Court said. Absolutely. And I think that's like the perfect sort of distillation of of the Black experience in the Americas, is that Dred Scott ruling. Absolutely.
2: I think the author that you referenced was referring to the police murders of Black folks and the phenomenon, mostly a white phenomenon, of mass shootings when he wrote about renewed rounds of Black murder helped to reify racial hierarchy for white populations, the falling apart of their lives. That seems to say that... Returning to normalcy for some white populations means reasserting white supremacy.
3: Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think also that's another really good, I think, blog piece by or within Society and Space by Brian Jordan Jefferson, where he kind of lays out the ways in which white supremacist violence, overt white supremacist violence, and the public spectacle, I think, of, of black pain and, and death sort of serves as like a grounding mechanism for people who are otherwise in a state of flux. The fact of the matter is, prior to COVID, prior to the economic downturn that is occurring right now and will continue to occur, there was increased economic instability, decrease of real wages, heightened addiction issues. You know, there's all these indices that demonstrate that kind of across the country, people in the United States, anyways, are, are feeling economically and I would say politically unstable, right, if we think about the election of Barack Obama as the first black president, which isn't to say that he was a black radical by any stretch of the imagination, but even the figure of a black man at the head of state. The possibility of a woman, right, and Hillary Clinton becoming the next president of the United States, I think all of these things kind of serve to destabilize a sense of white superiority. I mean, not fully destabilized, but threatened, perhaps, um, sense of white superiority. And so the spectacle of Black pain and death in its myriad sort of manifestations, I think, has always served to kind of remind non-Black people and especially white people that, you know, as bad as it gets for them, they're still not Black, right? Because they they aren't open to the forms of violence in the same way that Black people are. And so I think, you know, we could very much understand ourselves going through A moment like that right now, the fact that in the past few years vigilante murders, uh, expressions of hate-induced or hate-fueled violence by, by hate groups against Black people has gone up. That's not a mistake. And it's not as if those things necessarily only materialize when there's economic insecurity, but I think they certainly intensify when there's moments of economic insecurity when you look at the history of the United States.
2: Well, you expand upon the United States experience. You write various expressions of anti-Blackness around the world aren't necessary for the perpetuation of global capitalism.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the article, we talk specifically about things like gentrification and displacement, policing, and, and those questions, right? Which People who live in the United States, I think, unless they are completely unaware, are very cognizant of as questions and issues that affect the U.S. But when we look at the wider world, and I think I'm most familiar with the Americas, North America, South America, and to a lesser extent, the Caribbean. We can see, and I've been working on some other writings that sort of touch on this, this issue, but we can see how that assumption of Black spatiality, right, that assumption that Black people can't legitimately occupy space or create space is something that sort of, is certainly hemispheric and I would argue more than likely is global. I haven't done the work enough to know what that looks like in places like Europe or Asia, for instance, but in the Americas, it certainly is prevalent. And we talk about the petroleum industry and extractive industries in Brazil and how that is very much reliant on renewed rounds of displacement and renewed rounds of disqualifying Black senses of place in the Northeastern part of the country. But if you look at agribusiness in a place like Colombia on the Caribbean coast or in the Pacific part of Colombia, which is predominantly Afro-Colombian, you have intense amounts and intense instances of violence, displacement. If you look at a place like Nicaragua in different parts of Central America, the different sort of infrastructure and transportation projects that are central to uh, creating kind of these different networks of trade and increased globalization across the region are all plotted or planned through Afro-descendant populations' territories. And those places are routinely and regularly and readily sort of demonized as being criminal, as being physically empty. And all of that, I don't think any of that is an accident, right? It's not a mistake. There's a common theme here, and it's that Black spaces that are associated with black populations are routinely treated as available whatever presence there is there of population wise is always treated as superfluous or not adequately Managing and holding on to that space, and so they're they're pushed aside first I think conceptually and, and discursively, and then physically removed in some way, shape or form so a black Brazilian or a black Colombian
2: would conclude that in order for his people's struggle to bear fruit, they must become untied from the global system of capitalist production and a Black person in Detroit might reach that
3: conclusion as well. I mean, I think that's kind of one of those things where I think there's quite a bit of difference across the African diaspora, right? We speak different languages. We have different customs. We live in different sort of topographical areas or, you know, however you want to understand that. But I think there is a sort of common understanding in my travels. And and granted, you know, I've spent the majority of my time engaging with diasporic populations in the U.S. and in Brazil. So that's sort of what's framing my understanding of all of this. But I would say, yeah, I mean, I think there are, obviously, as you're well aware, there are plenty of Afro-descendant people who are going to see capitalism as a way out of their predicament, right? People who want to sort of harness the power of capital to try to, you know, they might see it as something that's able to improve them or their family or their community's way of life. But You know, again, in my own experience, I think there is an established and always increasing sort of critique of capitalist relations and a recognition that there are other ways of doing things that aren't tied to rampant accumulation, that aren't tied towards or tied to routine displacement. I learned so much from my time in Brazil in that I was, for the first time in my life, or one of the first times in my life anyways, really exposed to communities that had a very clear sort of analysis of not wanting to maintain capitalist relationships to the natural environment, for instance, which is something that they try to perpetuate and promote in part of their struggle for a variety of reasons, but one of which is because it has entailed so much violence for them over generations.
2: And you're clearly speaking of neocolonialism when you write that one effect of the expanding reach of global capitalism is the roles of nation-states. Those roles fundamentally change.
3: Right. The ways in which the nation states sort of position themselves, right, to aid in the expansion of of capitalism. Now, that's nothing new, right? That's something that has been occurring for centuries. But I think there's a way in which nation states in the present sort of subordinate themselves more and more openly to forms of capital flows. And when we look at the case of Brazil, for instance, the Brazilian state goes to such lengths in a lot of different ways to ensure that the circulation in shipping of different commodities, whether they're petroleum-based or mineral-based metals, coal, things like that, to ensure that those things continue to circulate. Or they mobilize the military to put down different protests, to ostensibly protect different forms of primary resource refinement and extraction. And It's one of those things that is unquestionably tied to the global economy because we know that the forms of extraction that take place in a region like Latin America is very much fueling and feeding the global North consumption and production practices. So that's kind of how we see that or how we saw that playing out in terms of how the nation state sort of relates to the wider global economy.
2: And has contributed to the fact that Colombians, mostly black Colombians, made up the largest segment of displaced, internally displaced persons in the world before Syria.
3: Absolutely. Right. And that's one of those things where, again, you you look at that situation in Colombia and it can't be... An accident. I think a lot of people would have you believe it's just kind of how things shook out. It's just by chance how things happened. But I don't know the exact number. I think afro Colombians make up, what, like 20-something, 20 20% to 30% of the population, and they're above 50% of those displaced by land conflict in Colombia. You know, the fact that the Pacific Basin of Colombia is one of the less populated areas, but also one of the areas that has the highest number of displacements as well. Again, I don't think that's an accident. And I think what, again, is so telling, I didn't actually know that statistic that you just put out, that it, they have the highest rate of displacement after Syria. But if I don't know that, then I'm guessing a lot of other people don't know that, right? And I'm not trying to downplay what's happening in Syria because that's awful, right? And, and any time people are displaced violently, it's a tragedy. But there's something about the Black experience, our historical experience, that doesn't necessarily have gone the sort of It's not mourned in the same way. It's not noted. It's not accounted for in the same way that the suffering and displacements of other people are. And again, I think that's part and parcel and a perfect example of how aspatiality plays out concretely.
2: And here in the United States, renaissance, the revitalization of cities, means black displacement.
3: I mean, absolutely. You know, I um, I think there's so many different ways that you can see that and experience it. I mean, I remember when I was in graduate school at University of North Carolina, I lived in Durham, right, which has historically been a majority Black city. And it was unbelievable the way that gentrification played out on the ground while I was there and the way that I saw it play out. And you would hear people say things like, I mean, Durham, non-Black people obviously saying things like, you know, Durham, it's it's getting better. It's getting better. And, and I'm thinking getting better how, you know, so many of the people that I met while I was there who had lived there for generations are being displaced. You know, they're having to move out of neighborhoods and houses that they've lived in for generations. And that is somehow perceived as and understood as being an improvement. I think the ways in which consumption is taking place, the way in which people's residential practices are taking place in cities now are very much part of, or I should say, Anti-Blackness and Black displacement makes those things possible, right? Consumption of residential practices possible.
1: That was Professor Adam Bledsoe, speaking from the University of Minnesota. How do Black LGBTQ inmates fare in the U.S. prison gulag? A good place to find out is in the pages of Black and Pink. Fatima Shabazz is one of the publication's founders.
4: Black and Pink is a national newsletter newsletter for incarcerated individuals, people who are in the carceral system, primarily who are part of the LGBTQ community. So whether you are male and gay or transgender, whoever you are, if you are on that spectrum, or if you're straight and you just want to browse through the magazine or the newsletter rather, and if you're an ally and you want to know what's going on, if you're interested, that's what that's for. So we have an inside membership and we have an outside membership, and primarily, What we are focusing on is prison abolition. Part of the focus of Black and Pink is prison abolition. However, it spans, as an organization, quite a few other aspects of the carceral system. I'm a founding member of the L.A. Black and Pink chapter here. I got involved with Black and Pink because actually I was incarcerated and I got bored. And I wanted something to read. But I was tired of reading the usual stuff, you know, just grabbing books from the library or from other, you know, guys on the tier or in the system or whatever the case may be. So I came across a guy at the facility that I was in that had that magazine and he handed it to me. And it was, for all intents and purposes, at the time Jason Lydon was, the the founder was, he was the founder and he was still running the thing. And for all intents and purposes, Black and Pink changed my life in a lot of ways, right? I started reading it, and I learned about situations that other people in the cross rule system were going through in other states. And much of those things are very, very similar to what we were dealing with here in the state of California. So you would find that we are far more similar than we are dissimilar, regardless of what ethnic background we come from, where we live in the country, which system we're in, whether it's state or federal or a juvenile, you know, hall system. We all have very, very many things and problems. In this particular case, it being locked up was the one thing that we all had in common. So I got involved with them through reading those things. And then I started to write letters. Originally, I was writing letters to Black and Pink to say, hey, well, you know what? We're kind of going through a lot of the same things here. And it would be a good idea if we could kind of connect the dots and, you know, see who's doing what and, you know, what was successful and what wasn't successful. And at the time, I was moving into a phase where I was going to file a civil action against the Department of Corrections. I actually wasn't sure at the time whether or not I was going to go through with it because it's a long battle and you kind of have to have a certain level of fortitude to deal with it because the department will surely string you out for as long as they possibly can, especially if you don't have your ducks in a row and you don't really understand the language of where the court works. In any case, as I kept reading along and reading through the different articles and the different complaints that people had throughout the other states, I just got upset. I got bothered. I got angry. And I'm an individual who tends to fight fire with an inferno kind of a situation. So I kind of started blasting people in articles. So it went from writing letters to writing articles about different situations. And some of them weren't very kind to my community, to the, you know, the, uh, the LGBTQ community, because sometimes someone may say something to you and you go off the hedge with it and think that it's you know a homophobic thing like that. A lot of the times it isn't homophobic. Sometimes it isn't homophobic. Sometimes it's just stupidity. And then sometimes we, as members of the community, we just do things that irritate people. And it's not always a good thing. You know, it's not because, you know, you wear your flag on your sleeve. So I would go after everyone. Anyone that I thought that was, you know, a knucklehead about something, I would go after them. But my style in this is not, unfortunately, it's not like the Donald Trump thing. I don't just blast people and deviate from what the actual problem is. So I would, uh, kind of get at people and say, hey, man, you know, this is what's really going on. And in that context, I wanted to be informative and educational when it came down to our community, because I am under the impression, still am, that there are people who read our newsletter who are not part of our community, who are not LGBT people. They are not gay, trans, lesbian, or any of those things, but they are allies. And what they want is an understanding as to who we are and why we are and what our mentalities are what our hearts and minds say and i wanted to be informative about that in the process of blasting people for just being knuckleheads or blasting the system for being unfair and unjust and corrupt um, especially where it relates to people who are part of a marginalized class and that includes people who are straight but are still part of a marginalized class like native americans and african americans latinos we are the majority of the department. We are job security for these cops in California that make $80,000 a year as a starting salary at you know, working in the department
2: of corrections. Well, Black and Pink has put out this very comprehensive survey of more than 1,100 prisoners across the country, LBTQ. Why'd you do that? What uses do you think this survey can be put towards? Well, the survey was primarily done because we needed to
4: know, we needed to try to pinpoint what the problems are in departments nationally. Like I said, we all have very similar problems. The softness is being locked up. But what we needed to know was how did members of the community get along in the facilities that they were living in? Were they allowed? like I'm a trans woman, right? And so one of the questions were, were trans women allowed to have private showers? If not, why? had anyone filed a grievance on things like that, right? We allowed to represent in our gender identity with regards to clothing and makeup and things of that nature. All of these things were fights that we had already had in the state or were having at the time that the survey was being put out in the state of California. Much of them we won, most of them we won um, because the department just thought it was easier to fold rather than have multiple lawsuits about all kinds of other things. So the reason for the survey was to find out exactly what the problems were with our population nationally, at every level that we could possibly come up with, you know, state, federal, the juvenile hall system. We needed to know exactly what everyone's problems were. And we needed to be able to discern the differences between an actual complaint and just somebody complaining, because there is a difference. You know, Sometimes people just complain, well, we don't like the food. OK, you don't like the food, that's great as long as the department gives you what is scientifically and medically considered a proper diet, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. That's a local issue. That's something that you kind of have to deal with on your own. So if you're upset that you get like processed ham for breakfast and not steak and eggs, man, you're in prison. Get over it, right? What we needed to know was whether or not you were being treated fairly, whether you were being misgendered, whether you were being singled out, whether you were allowed to take showers, what the search procedures were, what the housing procedures were, things of that nature. So it was necessary to do the survey and get as many people involved as possible so that we could figure out exactly what those situations were and we can laser beam solutions to the needs of those individuals and their prospective
2: situations. Well, you circulated this 133-question survey and got responses from 1,100 people. And what it produced is a very detailed kind of profile of who LGBTQ are in prison. What are the most salient points and maybe the points that might have surprised you most that came out of this survey? Well... I don't think anything really surprised me. I think
4: what happens with the departments on a local level and on a national level is they tend to follow a particular trend. And that trend tends to come from whatever the leading political force is in the nation. As it happens, California is somewhat of the leading political force because I believe the state of California has like the most electoral votes or something to that nature. However, California is also a a rather progressive state. And if you do something... particularly in the course in California, with the right wordage, you know, the right language, you attack it properly, you stay steadfast in your goals, you don't waver, you don't let them break you. They tend to become more pliable and they want to listen a little bit more and figure out, you know, what's going to happen. And California also has a vanity problem as well. They want to be known for being the first to do this or being the first to do something better. And that's kind of tended the way Everything kind of folded into that direction. So in some cases, you know, Boston, the state of Massachusetts, led the way. I think the first civil action regarding, if I'm not mistaken, the first civil action regarding gender reassignment surgery took place in in Massachusetts. And then California came along with the Michelle Norsworthy case and the Sal O'Quine case and then my case. And then several others have followed behind us. And then there was the housing situation. That was like a bigger thing and that was a salient point for me as well because as a trans woman i actually really wanted to live in an environment that was all women and that was really really a big sticking point to me but it was surprising to me to know how many trans women in facilities did not want to live in a woman's facility it was not surprising however that women had adversity women in women's facilities had an adversity towards trans women living in their facilities, primarily because, and this has to be understood, is that there are a good many women who are incarcerated who are incarcerated due to some sort of trauma. You know, they domestic violence and things of that nature. And as far as many of them are concerned, despite the fact that you may identify as a woman, you may wear women's clothing and you may wear makeup and things of that nature, you are still as long as you have you know, the genitalia of a male, you are still biologically male. And that could be a triggering issue for those ladies because they have suffered trauma through domestic violence or rape or any of those other situations that may have uh, led them down the path that brought them to the facilities. So I-, I think the juxtaposition between the two was a tad bit surprising to me in how much it kind of expanded across the nation. But in its general core, I wasn't really that surprised at all because the nature of the system is as it is. You know, most trans women want to be around guys and vice versa. So not a whole lot surprised me. I think in many ways, as time went on, how conducive the different systems were across the nation to wanting to work things out for this particular segment of the population was a little surprising, but I think a lot of it, or I thought at the time, a lot of it was just basically a smokescreen to keep them out of court. So we're working along with it. We're still kind of gathering information. And we have a national meeting three times a year, mostly in DC. And then we have one in New York. And people come from all over the country that do different things within and without the legal system. We come together and we brainstorm about what happened the three months prior and where we're going to go in the next three months or the next year,
2: or the programs that Black and Pink is starting, like, you know, the Lighting House program. This survey is quite exhaustive. It examines many details of prison life and uncovers lots of facts. For example, you found that 70% of the respondents, the people in prison, have been sexually active while in prison. But only 2% of the respondents have access to condoms that are allowed in prison. What uses can you put that kind of knowledge to? well first of all now i can't speak for
4: the availability of condoms in other states but i i was in the system when they were being distributed here in the state of california i was actually in the county jail coming back down from the federal system and transferring into the state system and originally it's my understanding that the original reason for the condoms was to stem the wave of sexually transmitted diseases. So at the same time that they put the condom boxes up, they also put a sign up that says even consensual sex in prison is illegal. And there's actually a penal code in the state of California that that manages that. But I think that, what I know that what we needed to have in terms of information on sexual activity as it relates to the availability of condoms was to know exactly that. How many people would admit it first like that they were actually sexually active within the system and then of those who were sexually active within the system did they have access to condoms or did they not so that is a little harder to discern primarily because the condom boxes are supposed to be in an area where they're easily accessible to everyone within the facility but what they do is they put the boxes in places that are close to or heavily monitored by the correction staff so they see who gets these condoms and that is how they pinpoint what's going on and who's doing what within the particular facility that you're in or the building or you know housing unit that you're in so a lot of the times because members of the community do not want the staff to know that they are sexually active, they will forego going to get the condoms because they don't want the staff to see them with them. Knowing that gives us an idea of how many people are actually protecting themselves and how many people are risking whatever comes down from their activity based on wanting to save themselves from possibly being, you know, locked solitary confinement and maybe even being charged, you know, with a sexual crime while in prison because of the particular penal code that exists here in the state of California.
2: On the subject of solitary confinement, some striking revelations from the survey. You say that 85% of the respondents have been in solitary confinement at some point during their sentence and that approximately half spent two years or more in solitary. Absolutely. Most states do not have a
4: part of their facility that is designated PC, for that matter, you know, for lack of a better phraseology. Out here, it was called S&Y, which is special needs yard. Now they're 50-50 yards, which is a whole nother ball of wax. Most states don't have that, though. Most states, if you are a member of our community or if you're just someone who doesn't want to be among general population, the only recourse you have, right, is solitary confinement. Now, a lot of us went to solitary confinement for various reasons. Some of us, because we just, you know, we were not going to be victims anymore or at all, things of that nature. I spent a couple of years bouncing around in solitary confinement because I'm just not going to be a victim. So I had a lot of fights, you know, and that was just kind of the gist of it. But there are some people who, some trans women who are just completely effeminate to the point where they are almost, they're basically incapable of defending themselves in a physical confrontation with a guy that does a thousand pushups a day, you know, so They want to get out of these locations, these cell housings right, or these dormitory housings where they have already probably been assaulted or there is a a massive potential for a sexual assault to take place. And the only recourse that they have is to go to solitary confinement. Now, a a lot of the times, though, that really isn't the only recourse they have. The simplest thing would have been to just move that person from the housing location that they're in to a more conducive setting, with someone that they would be in you know inclined to want to live with. However, because staff doesn't really care one way or another, their solution is to just put you in a, a cage,
2: lock your door, throw away the key. Black and Pink is an abolitionist organization. So you've come up with a set of recommendations, but you call these recommendations non-reformist reforms. That, uh, kind of like an oxymoron. I hate to say that because Dominique is probably going to punch me in the
4: face for saying that. But yeah, essentially Black and Pink as an organization is not a reformist organization. We are not essentially interested in reforming the system. The carceral system is retarded. It's crazy. It is dehumanizing. It is demoralizing. It is the one thing that I believe that no sentient being should ever have to experience in their lifetime. That system will turn you into something that you do not even realize it's turning you into until years later because you create an environment to live within that is not a real life environment. It is an artificial environment created for the purpose of your own sanity. And years later, when you're no longer a part of that, if you're not careful, it becomes. If not virtually impossible, it becomes extremely hard to function in the real world because you're not accustomed to doing things the way normal, quote unquote, people would do things out here. So to be locked up in solitary confinement for two, three, four or five years, there's some trans women. There was a trans woman here in the state of California, if I'm not mistaken, had been in solitary confinement close to 18 or 19 years when I came into the system. Now that's a long time to be in an environment like that without any real human contact, without any real sunlight, you know, without communication with people. So as a reformist organization, what are we gonna do? We're gonna say, oh, let's make solitary confinement better. You know, there's no way to do that. And we don't really care about making solitary confinement better. We wanna get rid of solitary confinement because it's dehumanizing and the mental health impact on that is dramatically and drastically devastating to the individuals who are, you know, subject to that confinement. But when we say that we are an abolitionist, non-reformist, reformist sort of an organization, what we are saying is that we really want to get rid of the prison system. But that can't happen overnight. It's not going to happen in one fell swoop. There's no governor or no president that I know of that's going to, you know, sign a bill that says, hey, the prison system is done with. What we want to do is we want to abolish the system, right, by reforming the system to such a way where they actually give the people who are incarcerated within their walls the actual real skills needed to be able to function in normal society, be able to do those things. Along with that comes the removal of as many of the 40,000 barriers that are in front of formerly incarcerated individuals when they step back out into free society. So that's what we wanna do. You know, We wanna reduce the populations as much as we can by properly educating and training these individuals, giving them the, you know, the guidance and the programming that they need, alternative to violence, all of those things, whatever it is that you need, drug counseling, whatever it is that you need, we want to make sure that the system gives you the things that you need in its proper form. We want you to get properly job trained, properly educated. And then, you know, we provide through black and pink and other organizations associated with black and pink, a whole host of wraparound services that will move you along your way, as long as you're willing to put the work there.
2: Now, some of the reforms that you recommend are pretty standard types of reforms. Eliminate stop-and-frisk, end racial profiling, and end quality-of-life policing practices. But what among your recommendations are specific to LGBTQ inmates? Stop-and-frisk is
4: one thing, right? And just general search and seizure type actions among our community. In many cases, right, depending on what facility you're in, what housing unit you're in, the staff on that particular yard, in many cases, the LGBT, members of the LGBT community are targeted because of who we are and because we stand out, because we do fight for some things. So we're targeted. Our cell houses or our lockers are searched more often than most other people's are. We are stopped more often, you know, walking to and from wherever our destinations are. We are stopped more often and searched by staff. Uh, which is a problem for a lot of us, especially for someone like myself. If you've been on hormones for a while, if you've developed breasts, or if you've had, you came into the system and you've had implants, and you have these guys groping you, and their idea is that it doesn't matter that you know you look like a female, you have a female's body structure, or whatever the case may be, or that you have you know breasts, you are, as far as we're concerned, a man in a male prison. Right So the fact that you say that to me is demoralizing and dehumanizing to begin with. The fact that you refuse to identify me or refuse to accept my identity is completely dehumanizing right there. So if you're asking me from a personal standpoint, that's it. But from a general standpoint, from what I've seen and witnessed, you know within the system, things that I' fought against within the system, it is imperative that the important things that we deal with among those are the searches, how those are conducted, the stop and frisk things, how those are conducted, and the complete recognition of who we are, regardless of where we are housed.
2: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.